How's it going, Restoration family? Welcome. So glad you guys are able to tune in with us. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, you can jump over to restorationaz.org to learn a little bit more about us. And we are going to continue our journey through Exodus, um, the second book of the Bible. But before we do that, we have a, a just a prayer that we want to pray over the mothers really quick. And so Ron Merrill, um, he led this um through each of our three gatherings on Sunday, but we just want to bless you and include that into our our teaching this week before we get into the word. So join us. This is something that I would love just to do together that I'd love to read a, a prayer as a blessing for you moms. And the rest of us are standing just as a symbol of the reality that our desire, our heart's desire is to stand up for you moms, to contend for you moms, to stand with you moms in the same way that God is standing up for you, that God is contending for you. And so as we stand, the ones that are standing there, maybe just in agreement and unity of heart and spirit, I'll read this prayer as a blessing for those of you moms. Dear Father, we approach your throne on behalf of the mothers whom you have entrusted with the care of your precious little ones. We thank you for creating each mom with a unique combination of gifts and talents. We thank you for the sacrifice of self each mom gives for her children, for the late nights spent rocking a colicky infant, for the hands calloused from washing, wiping, scrubbing, mixing, backing, stirring, hugging, patting, disciplining, holding, writing, erasing, painting, and pouring. We thank you for the gift of time moms give for their kids. Whether it's stay-at-home moms, working moms, and moms who have a combination of the two, we thank you for the flexibility of moms, for their tirelessness, their perseverance, and their devotion. We pray you give each mom strength. Help her to see in every mundane task the eternal cosmic significance that you place on motherhood. Help her to understand that the most radical, world-changing events may be happening anonymously in her home. Help her to forgive those who undermine her significance. We especially pray for single moms who must lean solely on you for the fathering of their children. We thank you that your big arms surround children who may never know their earthly father. We also pray for mothers who never had the honor of bearing children, but whose nurturing extends to the many poor and needy who cross the threshold of their lives, many of whom are standing right now. We ask you to be the daily bread of tired mothers. We ask you to be their living water. We ask you to be their source of spiritual and physical strength. We pray that the same grace that flowed from father to son to us in salvation will flow from mothers to their children. We pray that each mother rejects perfectionism and instead embraces the goodness of the gospel. We pray the rhythms of repentance and forgiveness shape every home. Lord, give each mother a worshipful reverence of you, the creator and sustainer of life. Help each mother to rest in the knowledge that they are but stewards of your children and that only your spirit can produce change in the hearts of each boy and girl. May each mother find rest in you. 
Most of all, Lord, on this day in which we honor mothers, may we love and cherish the special women who have borne us, who have nurtured us, and who have prayed for our well-being. May our hearts overflow with gratitude to you, who formed and knitted each of us in the mother's womb. Amen. Amen. Moms, we love you and we cherish you and we honor you today. The rest of you can be, be seated. And we won't just pray for you now. We'll be praying for you all week and all this month. God bless you, moms. Um, we, we're going to open God's Word together. And so if you have your Bible or maybe uh, an app with the, the Bible app on it there, you can pull that out. And we'll continue through our study in the book of Exodus as Landon brings God's Word open to us today. Thank you, Ron. As Ron said, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 3. We're in our, our third week in this, this series in Exodus. And uh, before we dive into that text, I actually want to read from the New Testament, uh, Matthew chapter 28, where we find Jesus' last words to his disciples. And what we'll kind of see this morning is that Matthew chapter 28, which is often referred to as the Great Commission, really parallels Exodus chapter 3. And so Matthew 28 is going to be a foundation for us. Let me read beginning in verse 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. In a nutshell, what, what Jesus is communicating to his disciples is something like this. Because of who I am... Jesus communicates, because of who I am, you can be confident in who you are becoming, and you are commissioned to share the goodness of God, my way of life, and my love to the rest of the world. Because of who I am is what God is communicating. You can be confident in who you are becoming, and now you're sent out to share the love and way of Jesus with the rest of the world. And then we'll now turn to Exodus chapter 3, where we read this, beginning in verse 1. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. These little words like meanwhile in the, uh, the scriptures, they're like transitional words. And meanwhile has 80-something years packed into it. If you're with us for week one and two or chapter one and chapter two of Exodus, meanwhile means that to this point, God's people, this nation of Israel, has went to Egypt where they found food in the midst of a famine and they've grown and multiplied substantially. They are now a massive nation that came from one small family, just as God promised. And while they were in Egypt, uh, Egypt was blessed because they were a blessing to God's people until 400 years pass. And at that point, the new king in Egypt, Pharaoh, looks out and sees this powerful nation, this family, 
and he's worried that they're a little bit too powerful at this point. So in his insecurity, he starts to oppress and abuse and harm them to keep them down so that they don't grow in power but diminish. But the opposite happens. It's God's people, and so he continues to bless them. And so when oppression and abuse is not enough, he, this king in Egypt, decides to move directly to murder. And he commands that everybody throw all Hebrew baby boys two years and under into the Nile River where they will breathe their last and drown. And that happens. And it's horrendous, except for at least one recorded boy named Moses, whose mother courageously builds an ark-like basket for him. And he floats on the Nile and cries out, and it's actually Pharaoh's daughter who has compassion and hears the sound of this baby boy crying. And she listens to love in that moment, and she actually adopts Moses into her home, into the home of Pharaoh himself. And in this household, Moses is trained up to be a great leader, one day the leader that would oppose Pharaoh and Egypt. Then he tries to save his people, and in the process, he actually murders an Egyptian in order to save the life of a Hebrew. At this point, the Egyptian people hate Moses. The Hebrew people also hate him and reject him, and so he ends up fleeing to the desert where he does find a wife and a family. That's the meanwhile of verse 1, if you've not been with us. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro the priest of Midian, he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. You can read that as uh, you kind of might imagine it. He's in the middle of nowhere in a sandy desert, not near anyone. It says the mountain of God, but at this point, it is not the mountain of God. It will be the mountain of God. At this point, nothing spectacular has happened there. Moses didn't go there with the intention of finding God and seeing God and speaking to God and having this really amazing spiritual experience. It was just a mountain. You kind of can picture the sounds, the, the smells, the sights. I really think about the sounds as Moses is there in the hot desert. Maybe there's the uh, occasional bleeding of the sheep and the, the goats are making a noise every once in a while. I can imagine you hear the wisping of the sand coming up and down as the wind blows, this kind of hot desert wind. And there's Moses, basically all alone except for his thoughts. We can almost never find that type of place, all alone except for our thoughts. And when we do, sometimes it's really terrifying. We're really good at distracting ourselves with shows and podcasts and entertainment and news and conversations and a constant voice in our ears so we don't have to listen to what our own voice says and wonders and is curious about. But there's Moses by himself, and I can't help but to be curious about what's going on in his mind. Maybe at this point he's thankful and content, and he goes, you know what, I lost everything, and yet in this moment God's blessed me, and here's a flock, and I have a family, and there's a lot to be thankful for. That's possible. Or maybe he's out in the middle of the nowhere in the desert and he points and looks in the direction of Egypt and he remembers who he was. He was a prince. He had power. He had all the pleasures of the world. He had everything he could want. And maybe he just wishes he could go back and not mess up all the things he messed up and go back to that moment. Or maybe he's angry with himself for choices he made. Maybe he's angry with the Hebrew people because when he tried to step in and love them and help, they did not respond well. They rejected him. Maybe he's angry at Pharaoh for trying to kill him three different times. Maybe he's angry with God. 
How could God have allowed this to happen? How could a God that cares and knows and sees and remembers his promises allow Moses' life to spiral so fast? I don't know. It's all speculation. I'm not sure what was in his mind as he's wandering around the desert, but I assume he had all kinds of questions and things he's processing. As he's doing that, we pick up in verse 2. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. It's almost comical. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? In a commentary I read this week, it pointed out that there was not some spectacular mountain on fire. This wasn't a a large pillar of fire or some really incredible miracle that you would see from miles and miles away and just go, what is happening? This is astonishing. That's not what's going on. I, I picture this ocean of sand, this desert, and a small little bush. There's not huge bushes. There's not great, beautiful green trees in this desert all around. It's probably a small, insignificant bush. Well, that's what God chooses to speak through them. There's a few key words. It was not consumed. It reminds me of Jesus. In this moment when he's speaking and teaching to thousands and the day's coming to the end and they need to be fed. Over 5,000 people. And he's got five loaves and two fish and he breaks them apart. He blesses it. He puts the fish and the loaves and keeps splitting it up into baskets and passes it out to thousands of people. They all eat and have their fill and then there's many baskets left. All of that food, all of those thousands of people and it was not consumed. The, the miracle is actually quite powerful here because there's a bush that's burning, but the fuel is not consumed. And there's these little beautiful hints in the scriptures that our God is not like us. We have to abide by the laws of scarcity in our world. We can't just snap and make more food appear or fuel. But our God, our Jesus, does not abide by the laws of scarcity. He can produce, he can heal, he can provide always. This is who he is. When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And this is significant. Two different times, God calls him by name. He doesn't say, hey, you. He doesn't act as if he doesn't know Moses. He knows his story personally and deeply and intimately. It's a great reminder for us. What was true of Moses is true for us. God knows your story. God knows shame you've experienced or hold on to. He knows the good you've done, the bad, all of it, just like he did with Moses. And he knows you by name. And most of all, he loves. He loved Moses. He would provide for Moses. He would lead Moses as he does with us. Moses, Moses, he calls him by name. Moses responds, here I am. God says, do not come closer. He said, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This is a side note, and I didn't share it uh, with the last gathering, but I, I think it's important. The place is not holy until God's presence is there. Moses did not go somewhere that was holy to meet God because God inhabited that place. The place where God was became holy. And we respond in that way. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Notice God doesn't have a name at this point. He just describes who he is in relation to people that Moses knows. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. Listen to those words. I have observed, I have heard them, and I know about their sufferings. Then he says, I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, meaning there's a lot of animals, there's more flocks, there's more food and provision and resources. It's the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites cry for help has come to me. Again, he hears. I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. If you weren't with us for our first two weeks, that was this theme. God sees what's going on in the lives of the Egyptians. He hears their cries and prayers. He remembers his promises to love and be faithful. He takes notice, observes, and takes action. And one of the beautiful things about this book of Exodus is we can remember again, like God knowing Moses' name, God knows our story. He sees, he hears, he listens, he observes, and he's moving in our lives. Which leads us to verse 10. Therefore. Therefore means because of what I just said, God had just described who he was in his authority. He was the God that hears and sees, that moves, that is providing miracles, the God that has authority in this moment. Notice how it sounds very similar to the Great Commission. Because of who God is, God's identity, which we'll get into more in just a moment, because of that, he commands Moses to go. In the same way, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what we read in Matthew 28. Go, therefore. When God establishes his identity, that's step one. Step two is for us to go once we understand who he is. Verse 10, therefore go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now I'm just picturing Moses. Here he was in that desert by himself with his thoughts, maybe having some type of internal wrestling match going on, like what my life could have been or what I should have done different or what I could have had if I didn't make this choice, all centered on trying to rescue God's people, his brothers and sisters back in Egypt, maybe regretting, maybe anger. And then here comes this ridiculous God going, Moses, Moses, I know you were thinking about how all this was messed up because of what you tried to do. We're going to do it again. And how does Moses respond? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I imagine the questions he was asking in that desert were probably centered on that. Maybe who is God and where is he and why doesn't he care? But also, who am I? What, in what ways does my past define me? as a murderer, as an attempted hero who got rejected, as an orphan, as someone without a family, as somebody who had a lot of power and prestige and lost it all, as someone who in this moment is alone by himself with the sand and the animals in the desert. And so he says back to God, who does not abide by the laws of scarcity. Moses is watching this as he has a conversation with God, and God says, here's what you're going to do. And Moses goes, who am I? This is the question burning in Moses' mind, and, and God has this answer for him. Moses says, who am I? Tell me who I am. And God says, I will certainly be with you, 
if I'm Moses, I'm frustrated at this. This has the, the feel of a politician who's asked a hard question and he doesn't want to answer it. And so he just answers a different question and he's going to just pretend that it's okay and move on and hope nobody notices. Moses goes, I need to know who I am. I'm not qualified for this. I tried once. I can't do it. Who am I? And almost as if he's ignoring him, seemingly, God says, I will certainly be with you. Going back to Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, share my goodness and my way and my love, my name with the world. Then he says, And remember, I am with you. I am with you always. God is not ignoring Moses' question. He's answering it on a deeper level than Moses actually had the capacity before this conversation to even understand. God is saying, you're going to go rescue my people from Egypt, and I will be with you. That's how it's going to happen. But he's not saying this so that Moses is simply encouraged and knows that it will be successful. He's not just saying, I'll be with you so it'll go well. He's saying, you are the one that I am with. That is your identity. Not only will I be with you so you will have success, that is true, but your actions are not what matter most. Let me answer the question you're asking. Who are you? You are the one that I am with. And your identity is built on that foundation. In essence, God looks Moses face to face in this moment of of sorts and says, you are not your past. You are not your present. You are who You are becoming as I lead you because I am with you. You are not your past and what you've done, good or bad. That's not why God had Moses in this moment. You're not your present as you try to figure out your own identity and purpose and get over the bad things and figure out good next steps. You're who you are becoming in Christ. You're who he's shaping you to be. You're who you will be as he continues to lead you because, and remember, I am with you always. To, to really understand, though, what that means, to find our identity and who God is, we have to, to keep reading because God is going to reveal. Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I tried that. It didn't work. Find someone else. Verse 12, God answers, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, And they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? In essence, he's saying, if I go and after 400 years, I say, hey, your great, 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 great grandfather, you kind of heard some stories about him. His God is going to save you now. I know it seems kind of distant and far and impossible, but he's going to save you. And they go, that's not enough. What is his name? This is what Moses is anticipating. Questions, curiosity, doubt about who this God is that will be with him. John Mark Homer in his book, uh, God Has a Name, describes this question in a way that's helpful. This question is not the equivalent of when you drive through a fast food restaurant or you order at the counter and they say, that's, that's great, sir. What will be the, the name on the order? So that they can call out the name. It's a label so that they get your food to you and not to somebody else. That's not what the Hebrew people will need. This isn't so that when they pray, they don't just go, hey, you, it would be great if you could help. 
I don't know your name, but if you could, it would be good. That's not what this is about. It's not a sequence of letters that will be a label and just a mere title. This is a name that they're interested in. I think of it almost like when a, a new football coach takes over at a college university and the, the new name comes into play and the fans and the alumni start to wonder, okay, this is the new coach. This is his name. What does that mean? What did he do at a previous program? Did he have a lot of wins and losses? Did he build the program or did he kill the program? Is he good at recruiting? Were there any scandals in this guy's past? What can we expect? What is his stat sheet? What is his history? It's not just what is his name, what do we call him? It's what can we expect when he arrives? In his presence, what will happen? That's what Moses anticipated his family, these Hebrew people, would want to know. What is his name? God replies to Moses with a seemingly another, or seemingly another not helpful answer. What, what name should I give them? God replies, I am who I am. Helpful. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. To understand this, we have to look at just a tiny little bit of, of Hebrew to, to see this. We'll bring up this first slide. I am who I am in Hebrew is this. Aye, Asher, Aye. I am who I am. Now, Yahweh, which God references himself as, uh, comes across in the, the Hebrew in this way. If we can go to that next slide, Scott. Yahweh means he is. It's the third person. So God says, my name is, I am who I am. What you will call me is Yahweh. He is who he is. This name, Yahweh, is used almost 400 times, 398 in the book of Exodus alone. And then in the entirety of the Old Testament, 6,828 times. That's a lot. It's pretty significant. But if you're anything like me, you're still going, this is weird. This is not helpful. Who calls themselves, I am who I am, or tells others from that this point forward, my name is, he is who he is. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But here's what God is communicating. He's taking a description and saying, this is now how I will be known forever. This is the name I'm taking on myself because I'm different than all of the other gods that you've experienced and seen and will ever hear of. The Egyptian gods at the time, and even the gods that occupied the lands of milk and honey, the promised land, where God was sending his people, they were gods that were flippant. They changed their minds frequently. They were moody. They were really needy. They hadn't grown up and matured. You never knew what they wanted. And so what happened was the people that lived in those lands, they would sacrifice some of their own children in order to save some of their other children. If it was a famine, if it was a drought, and they needed water to come down onto the land so that the crops could grow, so that they could live and not starve, and it wasn't working, they didn't understand their gods. Their gods weren't consistent. They weren't the same yesterday and today and tomorrow, and so they would try anything desperate, even killing themselves, harming themselves, sacrificing their children in hopes that that might just be the thing that would appease their gods. And Yahweh's saying, that's not who I am. I don't have any growing up left to do. I'm pretty complete. I'm perfect, and I'm faithful, and I'm loving, and I'm merciful, and I'm forgiving, yet I'm also just. I will 
Not only hear those who are oppressed, but I will come to their rescue. This is who I was yesterday for your great, great, great grandfather. This is who I will be for you. And this is who I will be for your children and their children and their children. There's no question marks when it comes to this God. He says, I am who I am. We say he is who he is. So you can know exactly what to expect. There will be no scandals. There will be no failure. He will always love and hear and support and guide and challenge. My, my wife, Chelsea, and I, from time to time, I feel like it's every three or four months, we'll be sitting at the, the dinner table and our kids will make us laugh or they'll say something really mature and thoughtful, whatever it is, and it'll spark this conversation we have every now and then of who do you think they're going to be? What do you think they'll do for a career? How many kids do you think they'll have? How old do you think they'll be? Will any of them still live in Prescott? What will they want to study? All of these questions. And it's just fun to to speculate, to guess, to see based on how they're acting at the time. Our oldest loves rules, unless we put too many rules on her. But she really loves to enforce the the rule-keeping of others. So there's a good chance I think I could see her being a judge or a prosecuting attorney or something of that variety. But she also has this real entrepreneurial spirit. We were at breakfast just yesterday. And I kid you not, the, the conversation we had was about profit margins and staffing and payroll, literally gross and net income. All of these things are what we're talking about with my eight-year-old daughter. That's just how she thinks. She goes, when I run my restaurant, Dad... My uh, second oldest daughter, she is entirely different than the oldest. She actually deeply loves just being with people. She's a people person in that way. I see her maybe being a teacher or a therapist or counselor or maybe a nurse like her mom, but something face-to-face, hands-on, direct in that kind of way. My son, he's the wild card. (laughs) He loves to make people laugh. So I could see a stand-up comedy kind of career for him or him giving it a shot for a while. But he's also deeply just creative and unique, and he loves and is really good at building things. I could see him being an architect or something of that sort. We laugh about it. It doesn't really matter. We'll see who they will be, but we don't know who they will be. You know, you get comments as you think about those that are younger. Who will they grow up to be? Your hands are going to be full with that one. She's going to do great things. There's speculation and question, and we wonder about how people will turn out. We wonder about the college football coach and if there will be any scandals. When God says, I am who I am, he's saying, there will be no scandals. There's no question. There's no debate. I have been faithful. I have been love. I am faithful. I am love. I will be faithful. I will be love. Know this now. Know this forever. Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, you are the one that is with me. That's where your story starts. You're not your past. You're not a murderer. That's not what defines you. You're not fatherless. That's not what defines you. Your identity is not built upon your attempts to save others that didn't go well, your, lonely, your loneliness now, the things that have gone well. You're not your past. You're not your present. You are who you are becoming as I am with you, as I'm shaping you, as I'm healing you and restoring you, as I'm guiding you, as I'm providing others to lead you along the way. You are not your past, good or bad. You are not your present. 
You are who you are becoming because I am with you. When I was uh, 22, I had an opportunity to go to a conference in Grand Rapids, Michigan. One of my friends and, and mentors was speaking at a conference. And so I think it was like a, a three-day conference. And I was very happy to pay for the flights and hotel to go to this because my friend Tyler was brilliant. And I loved whenever he would give me the opportunity to tag along to something like this and just learn and grow. And so I did that. The conference went well, learned a lot, took notes. It was good. And then on the last night, we were going to some closing dinner party of the conference deal. And so we walk in. I'm 22, so I could rent a car, but it cost a fortune because I wasn't 25 yet. I didn't, I hadn't accomplished anything. Nothing had happened in my life. So I am with Tyler, and we walk up these kind of big eight steps to this fancy front door, and we walk in, and as we open the door, I see all the people that spoke at the conference. And I'm like, I don't belong here. And so I start kind of mingling around, doing my best to just pretend the best I can that I do belong, to not give away that I'm only 22 and I don't have all the degrees and I haven't accomplished all the things. And so I came up with a strategy that was working really well. I just quickly moved from one spot to another, kind of nodded my head, said yeah, and then went and grabbed another drink or some food or whatever. And it was going well until this, this really rude, interruptive guy comes up to me and goes, hey, and he just stops me. And calmly looks me in the eye and goes, what's your name? And I'm thinking to myself, you got to be kidding me. I have a good plan. I'm pretending. It's working so far. And now I have to talk to somebody and open my mouth and speak words. And he's asking me this terribly hard question. What is your name? And it's six letters. And i got to figure out how to get those six letters out right. And I'm sweating. And I don't know what to do. And so I sit there for a second. And I look at him. And I go, um... I am with Tyler. I am with Tyler. That's who I am, with Tyler. And it was funny because instantly, as soon as I said who I was with, he's like, oh, I love Tyler. I've known Tyler for a decade. This is what Tyler and I did together. As he's sharing this, I found out and realized he was the president of the university. So he was like the bigwig of bigwigs in this house. And he was so kind and generous, and we just started talking about what I was doing at 22, and he was encouraging, and it didn't matter to me who I was in that moment. He saw who I was and cared, and he also saw a future because of who I was with. I did not belong in that house, but because I was with Tyler, I got this entry. I made great connections, and little did I know that night and the next morning would actually be the decision point for this church to be planted one day. Uh, it was decided in the airport the next morning, as God would so have it. But it started with this foundation because of who I was with and who I would become and what would happen. And Tyler is not Jesus, but he was super generous with his time, with sharing and teaching. Their church financially supported me and us. It was a gift. And it's something like that when Moses hears these words. He goes, who am I? that I should do this. God goes, you're not understanding. You are the one that is with me. I am, will be with you always. John uh, chapter eight, I'll go ahead and, and close with this. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders in the, the New Testament. Read this. He says, your father, Abraham, was overjoyed that he would see my day. 
He saw it, this future, and rejoiced. The religious leaders, the Jews, replied, You aren't 50 years old yet, Jesus, and you've seen Abraham? This is not a genuine question. It's rhetorical and sarcastic and insulting. And Jesus says to them, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. This is why Mormonism or any other religion that attempts to say Jesus is any less than the one true God himself has no argument. When you study the scriptures, Old Testament and New, time and time and time again, Jesus so clearly articulates who he was. The passage continues and we read what happens next to Jesus. At that, when he says, I am, I am who I am, he is who he is, they pick up stones to throw at him to kill him, to stone him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple complex. Why did they do that? Because they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. They didn't believe that he was God, but they certainly believed that he was claiming to be. And then we fast forward to Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says, because of who I am, Therefore, go. I'm sending you out into all of the nations. By the way, you live and love and interact and handle your resources and the everyday stuff of life. That's the go in your going. Therefore, because of who I am, I have authority. You go. And remember, I am with you always. It's the hope we have. We have a job to do. We've been commissioned to take his name and goodness and love out into the world. But the I am, Yahweh God himself, is with us. And so your identity, like Moses, is not what you've done, good or bad. The more you love God, he doesn't love you anymore. He just loves perfectly. The less you love God, the poor choices you make, he doesn't love you any less. Our identity is founded on simply being with him. You are not your past. You are not your present. You are who you are becoming in him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your presence. I thank you that wherever you are is holy ground and that you are with us here this morning. You'll be with us as we walk or drive to our, our homes or the grocery store or the, the bank or uh, another home of a family member or a friend. When we go to our, our jobs, whatever it is we do, wherever we go, you are with us. Will you help us to understand what that means, to know you more, to embrace not only uh, the realities of what has happened and is happening, but of who you are forming us to be. We trust you. We look to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. With that, my name is Nate Huss. I'm one of the team members here. Thanks so much for joining us. If this is your first time, welcome. Glad you're able to tune in. Uh, if you want to jump over to restorationaz.org to learn a little bit more about who we are. And um, yeah, we say this every time, but we mean it. Remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.